The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. If you love business, then you're probably having a pretty trying time right now. The news feels like the opening credits of a disaster movie where they're showing how things went downhill to explain why we all now wear possum skin and roam in packs. We're having historic losses on the stock markets, borders are closing, and the outlook for the future is all a bit unprecedented. A lot of businesses will be looking for help and advice. Well, enter today's guest, Zach De Silva, who is one of the top-rated business coaches in the world. His background is as an accountant, and he was CFO of Flight Centre at the age of 28 when Flight Centre was ridiculously large. He went on to lead a $100 million organisation, run the turnaround of Barkers, and then became a coach in the corner of great local businesses, with 38 clients landing on the Deloitte Fast 50. I took part in one of his workshops, and working with Zach has helped me get clearer about business than pretty much any other thing I've done, and we could all use some clarity right now. Along with his wife, Sip, he runs Business Changing and the Nurture Change events, and with his experience in business, we thought he was the perfect person to get on to talk about his journey and get some straight talk on what people can do to help in this wild and uncharted time. Zach, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Simon. Hey, so first up, tell me about your your start in business. You trained as an accountant and then got, got in through there. Tell me about that. I did. Well, when I was at school, my best friend's brother, he was an account he was an accountant. So I thought, oh, that's quite a good thing. So I just literally copied him, thought it was cool at school, did a BCom, got a job in one of the big four firms and started as an auditor. And I was the first in my year to to leave pretty much because it wasn't me. I thought, this is not for me. I wanted to get into real, real life. And I um, yeah got into travel, started at Hello World. And um, I guess the, the great thing about being an accountant as a trade is that numbers never lie. So for me, with what I do these days as a coach, knowing that numbers don't lie, and, and you know, I suggest to listeners out there, you know, your, your numbers do not lie, what are your numbers telling you? It's such, a, it's such a really powerful thing, so I'm very lucky to have that as a background. And tell me about that move into travel. What attracted you to that area? Well... It's funny, but as a kid, you got to remember, I grew up in the you know seventies and eighties, and there was no internet, so I had a P 
passion. I wouldn't call it a fetish. It was like a passion. And it was travel, but I didn't really travel. We were just a normal, you know, you didn't travel much in the 80s. My first trip was to Fiji at, in 86 and, you know, et cetera. And, but I was, con- I was collecting travel brochures. So I'd go to, you know, the local travel agents all around Mount Roscoe, Mount Albert, Mount Eden, wherever I lived. And I had about 10 banana boxes of travel brochures. So I could literally quote you the price on a Contiki trip in Europe, blah, blah. So I had this real interest in travel. So I thought when I wanted to get out of the big four firm where I was, I thought I want to get into travel. And um, yeah, I was very lucky to get into travel and then the rest is history. So tell me about Flight Centre when you went there as, you know, uh, the world's moved pretty quickly in, in the last 10 years. But not that long ago, uh, you know, that was that was the norm that you'd pop down to the local travel agent. Tell me about the size it was and then kind of, you know, how it grew while you were there. Yeah, well, when I started, so I started in New Zealand and uh, I think we had about 28 shops. When I when I left, I ultimately went to Australia as well and I came back to New Zealand at head offices in Australia. I think we probably had 110, 120 shops doing like a billion dollars in New Zealand and Australia when I was there. We were doing three or four billion a year. So um, it certainly grew. I guess you'd say New Zealand quadrupled, perhaps more. And um, yeah, it was my informative days. I was lucky to have a great mentor, um, Chris Grieve, who was the managing director and one of the main shareholders of Barker's. And he was like amazing for me. He's, I guess you'd say, been my business father. And I've just learned so much from him. And you'll hear a little bit more about him later as well. So, um, yeah, it was, um, Flight Center was amazing. And people know the culture, you know. I mean, it's meant to be a bit of a party place and all that. It's interesting. I wasn't really a, a drinker or anything, but I certainly had lots of fun there and made a lot of good mates. And um, still come across people now. And they've moved throughout the travel industry and moved into other, into other industries as well. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And it was massive like you know you know with um how many kind of staff and as cfo like with all of those franchise stores and all those relationships with travel companies and airlines and hotels must have had a an absolute shitload of moving parts it did i mean when i was the cfo in australia i had literally 250 to 300 people in my finance team so it was you know like a big business i guess just running the finance and the commercial arm of flight center but it was a lot of moving parts but i think again what i learned from um Chris, who I mentioned earlier, who was my main mentor, um, was just keep business simple. Um, and by keeping it simple, I guess I've learned that the, the way to be successful, whether you're at Flight Centre or whatever business you're in, you know, even a small SME today or whatever, it's to be really aware of your most important things to do. And what I mean by that is you look at the average human being, and we're humans, and we might know the top five things that we should do, but we do number 33 and number 98 because we're humans. When what you need to do, which is again, as I say, I learned from flight center days, but carry it on now to my clients and all that stuff is if you just do your one, two, three, four, five, it's pretty obvious you're going to be successful. You know, you look at Michelangelo, um, Leonardo da Vinci, you know, um, Winston Churchill, all these people who are arguably successful, Bill Gates, whatever, they just did the most important things in the right order. So I think flight center was built on the premise of knowing what the most important things in that massive cog, or massive wheel of business and focus on those things. And um, yeah, it was certainly very good learning for me. I was, I was there about eight and a half, nine years. And as I say, for me, it was um, yeah a real key to where I've, you know where my knowledge is today and how I'm able to help other businesses. And it was a listed company and you were 28 when you picked up the CFO role. That, you know, be, being a CFO of an organisation that grows to have 300 people in your team is a big role anywhere. But as a listed company with all that extra kind of um, pressure and oversight and kind of chatter around it, how was that? It was a little bit freaky. I, I have to say it was interesting being a Kiwi moving to Australia because in New Zealand, 
you know, I grew up nearing St. Luke's. So the fact that St. Luke's Flight Centre was really amazing and successful, I could, um, I guess you say, emotionally connect to it. But in Australia, you know, the fact that Indrapilly Flight Centre was really successful didn't mean much to me because I hadn't grown up in Australia. So it, it actually was an interesting challenge to, I guess, you know, for me, I reckon to be successful, whether it's in a job or in business, you've got to have an emotional connection. So, I mean, I certainly loved Australia, but as I say, I felt a lot more connected to Flight Centre New Zealand. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, for me, I was one of those revenue-focused accountants, you'd say, who was more interested in growing sales, growing gross profit rather than um, saving costs. So, um, you know, that was the approach I took. And we implemented some great things in Australia that went around the flight centre world, and a lot of them exist today. So that was, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of learning. One of the big things we did was create this thing called a Ten Commandments, and it was the Ten Commandments of flight centre finance. You can imagine we had roughly 10,000 shops and different little businesses or medium-sized businesses within the flight centre group. And we had about 20,000 bank accounts because each shop had two bank accounts. And you can imagine that you could get into a lot of strife with having, you know, you're not talking about a normal company's one, two or three bank accounts. We're talking 20,000 bank accounts. So we created this thing called the the 10 Commandments of Flight Centre Finance. And what that was, was what's the minimum standards that a shop manager or a business manager in Flight Centre, what they must do to enable financial control of their business. And we launched that in the late 90s, early 2000s, and that's still around today. So I think um, I learned, you know, if you have very clear minimum standards and if you can get them across your staff um, and your team, you're going to have a lot higher chance of, I guess, um, delivering great customer experience to a, to a customer and, and, and being successful in a company. So that was a really good learning, the Ten Commandments. I think that, you know, staff often don't know what the minimum standards are that you expect. So I'd suggest to businesses out there, get your minimum standards known, and then once they're known, you can obviously hold people accountable to them as well, which is a really big part of being successful in business, you know, having accountability. And, and within that company, you did some entrepreneurial things, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, but building a, a, a part of the group up to a $100 million yep. company. Tell me about that and then the decision to actually jump out and um, and go from this big successful listed company where you're kind of, you know, make, making all this money to then be part of a buyout of a struggling clothing company. Yep, yep, sure, yeah, good question. Um, I was lucky enough at Flight Centre to be able to set up in New Zealand the corporate traveller and FCM travel. So I think whilst I was the CFO, I was able to be effectively part-time CFO, but also part-time, you'd say, general manager of a division of Flight Centre. And um, we launched that in 96 from memory, and I was involved for about seven or eight years, and I had a small shareholding in it, and um, it went very, very well. And we grew, as you said, to around $100 million. And we were, um, I guess you'd say, the mavericks of corporate travel, because everyone just thought Flight Centre was where you get a bargain, uh, you know, for, for travel or whatever. So we were going against that perception, but over time, it was interesting. I looked like I did a good job because the business grew well, but actually I might have done an okay job. But the reason that the business grew well was we, we had a great team. It was both the travel consultants, the account managers, but also the um, salespeople involved. Like I had some incredibly good salespeople who were good at winning sales. So as I say, I mean, yeah, I, I obviously had a part to play, but the truth was the reason it was successful was mainly because we had a great team. They all knew what they were meant to do. And they work really well together. So I think, as, as, as your question was, Simon, you know, why did I get out of travel? I mean, it's interesting. Um, partly, I have to say, the internet. You know, I actually thought, this is getting a little bit too hard, actually. I mean, you know, obviously we know travel agents are still around today. Of course, in today's world, with what's happening, it's, it's obviously very challenging right now. 
And uh, But I have to say that, you know, I have been quite surprised that travel agents, if you're a good one, you've still blossomed over the last, you know, decade plus since I got out of it. And I have to say that I was a little bit tired of like, oh, this is just all getting a bit groundhog day and a bit challenging. You know, commissions were being cut. You know, there was no commission paid on domestic airfares, trans-Tasman, probably even South Pacific. So it was actually getting hard to make money. And I just thought, I've done, I've done a, you know, been in this industry for quite a long time now. I've learned a lot. I think I was at the stage where I thought, if I don't do something now, I'm kind of going to be a travel person forever, and I really need to do something different. So I was... Um, I was looking at businesses, and it was actually with Chris Grieve, my mentor, who I talked about, who was the flight centre um, managing director, one of the main shareholders. We went into business together, so um, I had a small shareholding here, the majority, and I was looking at different businesses. You know, we looked at businesses like House Pizza, we looked at a bathroom business, um, and we looked at all sorts. But I, the key that Chris and I talked about was that I had to find a business that I was actually passionate about. I remember in the late 80s, early 90s, um, when I was at university, Barker's was super cool. And I was an impressionable young person and I wanted to be cool because that's what you did when you went to university. And I'd go to Barker's Queen Street most lunch times along with Marbex Records because that's what you did back in the day. And I'd look at the clothes. I couldn't afford many, so I'd look at the samples and the seconds. But I'd always think, man, these Barker's guys, they seem to have it. You know, they seem to have a good life. So I was always very passionate about Barker's. But then over the course of the next, say, 15 years, I thought Barker's actually closed down. I was, I guess you'd say what you call a high street shopper and I hadn't, wasn't really going to shopping malls much and I didn't actually know that Barker's still existed. So when I saw it was on the market, I thought, <clears throat> I thought, wow, it used to be really mass market cool when I was young. You know, beyond the track pants, it was also cool, you know, beyond that as well. And I thought, what about if we got Barker's and if I could somehow with, with the, you know, get a good team together and make it mass market cool again? So I guess we took on Barker's because I was passionate about it and because it had real potential, it used to be really successful. It had obviously, I mean, it was still successful in its own way, but it, it, it wasn't like it used to be. So, um, and I guess the rest is history. You know, you'd say now 14 years later, you know, Bark has, has really um, done, a, you know, it's done a really good job. Obviously, I, I was able to help start that. The, the current people um, have kept that going as well. And it's known for many um Many things. I think the biggest thing is, you know, it's not embarrassing to wear barkers. That was my aim was, okay, I'm not saying it's embarrassing, but I really want it to be like, I wear barkers and I wear it proudly. So that was um, what we went into the business with. And, um, yeah, I had, a, I had a great five years there. And um, the rest is history. Yeah, and so when you went into it, like it was struggling, it didn't have uh, a, a, the kind of strong retail presence. Um, you know, this, and, and tell me about some of the things that you did because I guess, like, clothing is so much around the brand and the experience and the making it cool and the like. And what are the things that, you know, you, you put on top of the numbers approach? You know, if you said on paper, the CFO from a really big listed company is coming to run a um, struggling clothing brand, you might not see that that was going to be a perfect match. Yeah, so it's a good question. Uh, I, I guess, you know, the big thing was how do we make Barker's cool? So in my view, um, first of all, it, it lacked a retail presence, meaning at the time it had 18 or 17 or 18 shops. Very quickly, uh, we I grew it to about 29 shops with, with my team. And I have to say, whilst that sounds good, the GFC did hit in the middle of all that. So in reality, you know, probably did expand a little bit too fast and certainly learned a great lesson um, because I'd never managed stock before. And... We didn't really have a CFO or anything at Barker's, so I guess in some ways it kind of fell on my shoulders as the managing director. And within about a year or two, we very quickly had about $1.5 million too much stock because 
I guess I was I was trusting people and that they knew what they were doing and asked them questions, but I didn't actually delve deep enough. So for me, it was a great lesson as a business owner, delve really, really deep, get into your gut feel. If you feel something's not happening, go deeper. So I could I learned a great lesson there, and now I'm very good at you know such things, stock control, cash flow, and all that stuff. But in terms of how do we make it cool? I had one big aim, and the biggest aim was, okay, what's the coolest thing that you can do in New Zealand to be acceptable as a mass, mass market brand for males? And it was to win the All Blacks. So I remember ringing up Steve Chu. Um, within a couple of years, I wanted to get the clothes at Barker's heading in the right direction. I wanted to get the brand heading in the right direction. So I rang up Steve Chu and started a random conversation. And um, at the time, you know, was able to eventually win Barker's. So um, I, I love rugby. I was able to go to all the All Black games, sit in the All Black box, you know, sit with, you know, meet. I'm now really good friends with Graham Henry, made a few mates as All Blacks, etc. But So that was the biggest thing, I think, was winning the All Blacks. We also started to um, use, I guess you'd say, um, celebrities. Now, it's very funny, but our first celebrity we used when I took over was um, what I would call at the time a C-grade celebrity who has since gone on to achieve quite interesting um I guess you'd say famousness if there's such a word. Um, and it was Clark Gayford. So he was a Georgie FM uh, DJ and he was literally the first uh, the first uh, model that we got involved back in 2006. And then we um, yeah, in- included a lot of New Zealand cricketers. We obviously have All Blacks. We've even had like, you know, Sonny Bill Williams, you know, you name them. We've had even Dan Carter one year. We've had them as, as models of Barkers. And we also did a really cool thing with prostate cancer. Obviously, um, I'm a big believer in, you know, trying to do good where you can. And we had to get. We, I wanted to get involved with a charity that obviously had obvious um, male um, connections, so we got involved with this thing back then that was called Blue September, and we did um, a whole set of boxer shorts where we had people like um, you know uh, Agustine. Uh, yeah, I think it was it was actually Mark Ellis designed it, and Agustine was wearing it. His wife at the time. We had like, you know, Bo Runger, we had Namia Tialata, we had Dick Frizzell, you know, et cetera. All that. And we raised about 120 grand. We did actually the biggest, we went to Mount Smart, we had thousands of people all wearing boxes. It was quite interesting. And um, so that was pretty cool as well. So I guess it was just how do we make it mass market cool? How do we get to the front of mind? And we also did some very successful marketing campaigns. Got a lady called Sandy Bergham involved who was great at, at marketing and um, she was very helpful as well with helping our brand. And the market research she did, which was interesting, which I'm sure is very relevant to a lot of not just fashion companies, but was that our customers were dying, as simple as that. We had to get a whole lot of new customers. So it was, you know, it again helped us get the Clark Gayfords and all those sort of people. How are we going to connect with the younger crowd? Because, man, if we don't, Barkers isn't going to be around for much longer. Cool, and we'll be back in a minute to hear more about that soon. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fund that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. Check it out through the spin-off. Kia ora, sorry for this interruption, it's Alice Neville here. I am the food editor at the spin-off. And I just wanted to pop in and tell you about our food podcast, Dietary Requirements. Hosted by me... Simon Day and Sophie Gilmore. It celebrates all there is to know about eating and drinking. There's cooking tips, there's special guests, there's what we've been eating and drinking lately and we try not to chew into the microphone too much. So if you like food and drink, listen in. You won't regret it. It's it's at thespinoff.co.nz and all your favourite podcast providers. And I imagine having 29 stores and millions of dollars of, of stock and, 
you know, you must have had hundreds of employees and then something like the global financial crisis hits. I mean, jeepers, how do you, how do you, you know, what, what did you have to do to navigate through that? And, you know, like we're in a cycle now where things are probably going to be hard for quite a while. Like how quickly do you work out what's going on and how quickly do you start acting? Yeah, well, certainly with Barker's, um, uh, over about three or four days, the US dollar dropped from 82 cents down to 56 cents. Now, that was a reason why uh, Line 7 went out of business, as an example. Like That's a catastrophic impact for an importer. So I was tasked with, along with my production team, going to China to try to find some new suppliers who were still good quality, but but cheaper prices because, you know, that, let, let's say it's a 33% reduction straight away. Man, that was catastrophic. So that was the first thing. Immediately we got on the, um, I guess you say, the bandwagon of going to China, going to trade fairs, visiting factories, and that was hugely, uh, when I say successful, hugely successful with hindsight, but also interesting where not every supplier you get on board obviously delivers as you expect. So I suppose that was the biggest thing, you know, that if we could control the USD, um, in terms of the the fallout with with better purchasing prices in China, that was going to help. We also, I forget if it was like operation a million dollars. It was quite a lot of money, but we had to just take an X amount of money out of our business. And I think for today, that's quite relevant. And you know, I, I started as the managing director. I'd never been interested particularly in signing off the invoices or anything. I mean, I'd kind of been across them. I guess you'd say big ones, but I actually started looking for a few months at every single invoice that we had. And I was astounded at the money that we were wasting on things like, how the heck, you know, this thing, we've got this bill for 10 years, like what the heck, what is this thing? So we certainly went through a, I guess you'd say a reviewing of costs and what we're truly getting an ROI on as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, you've got to act immediately. And it was interesting. I feel the same thing now. It's almost like the same as what's happening right now. But with the GFC, you know, let's say it didn't really affect NZ till about 2009. I know it happened in 2008, but we had a delayed impact. Most businesses, in reality, they had the glory days of 06, 07. That's when we should have been sharpening the pencil, cutting costs and all that all that sort of stuff. And perhaps it's the same today. We, we probably have been a little bit late in reviewing some of those things. And, um, you know, speaking to suppliers for better terms and all that sort of thing. So, um, as I say, it was interesting times. But, um, you know, as you can see, Barkers has got through it and is certainly shining today as well. And they even own Max today. I mean, they've had some interesting examples. They obviously did Topshop, which didn't work out. Um, but, you know, Max is a great buy for them. And, um, yeah, they're, they're going certainly strong as far as I'm aware. So, And you decided to step out of um, the world of, uh, of of clothes and become a business coach. How did how did that happen? And tell me about kind of, you know, what, what kind of people you, you've been coaching. Sure, yeah. Well, it happened because I was very passionate about helping other people, I guess you'd say, improve and, and, and I guess reach what they're able to reach from a success perspective, how, whatever success means to them. So at Barkers, we were very lucky that over time, over the several years I was there, we'd built a very good culture. And that culminated in 2009 where Barkers actually won the best workplace in New Zealand. And the same year, we won the best customer experience. There was an MYOB award called the best you know, customer experience. We won them both. And that goes, it's kind of obvious because when you've got engaged staff, you have great customer experience. And I guess you'd say when we won that award, it just it just kind of got me thinking like, man, well, I've loved what I've done with Barkers with you know, 200, 250 staff, whatever. That's fantastic. Imagine if I could actually touch 250 businesses, not just 250 staff, and then by touching those businesses, I could actually help all of their staff as well. So I think it was more connecting with my real, my real personal why, which is I, I exist to help other people, when I say be more successful, you know, as I say, it's not just financialists, be more successful, whatever that means to them, and that's what really drives me. So I kind of thought, well, 
I've got a little bit of public recognition now because people have noticed that Barkers has, I guess you'd say, risen from the grave. And also people were aware that we had a good culture, had good customer experience. So I thought now's the time to kind of do my next thing. Um, I was around, I think I was approaching 40 from memory, um, in my, you know, around 40. And so, I mean, the rest is history. It's gone incredibly well. And I was lucky because I was um, had a little bit of credibility behind me. Unlike many new businesses, I went relatively good from month two, if you know what I mean. Like it actually went quite well pretty quickly, which was really positive for myself and my family. And for me, it's all grown from word of mouth. And I guess I don't leave any client alone until I'm happy that they have reached their pinnacle per se. And that's why most of my clients, you know, we work with them for the long term. So I've worked with some great companies. I guess some of my my um Yes, let's say notable um, favourites or, or successes would be um, a software company called Promap. I was a director of that for eight years from 2010 through to the middle of 2018. We got acquired by Nintex. It's a software company, Promap is um, enterprise and, and SaaS and focuses on systems. And we got acquired for a lot of money and that was really um, exciting for me. I was a director of that and that was fantastic. I was involved with Huffer um, back in the early 2010s. Huffer was struggling immensely and you know, was not looking pretty. So I got involved. Um, Erica Crawford, who was involved, called me in, and obviously um, Steve Steve as well, Steve Dunstan. And it was fantastic to be able to help turn that business around, and it's really flourishing now. So that's probably one of my favourites. I was able to I, – what I, what, what I did was launch retail for them. You know, they had to become mass market cool as well, so I applied the same thing as Barker. So great to see Huffer succeed. Um, Koto, um, one of my f- uh, great – clothing brands have done incredibly well. They were Deloitte Fast 53 years in a row and that's organic and you know environmentally friendly clothing and what's been really great with them is they've got two retail stores in New Zealand but actually they're massive worldwide. They're a huge exporter. So it's been great working with Gosher and her team. Um, some of my more, I guess you'd say uh, another favourite is 84 Recruitment, which is just an engineering recruitment company, a guy called Mark Fisher. The reason I love that is Mark approached me when it was just an idea. And I, I have a Word document with all my clients, and the, the name of the Word document is not called 84 Recruitment Mark Fisher. It's called Mark Fisher Recruitment Company because we didn't have, an, have, an idea, have, a, have a name. So that's gone incredibly well. Here's Deloitte Fast 50 as well. These days I'm working with Earl's Collection, which is a great company. You know, Lewis Brown, who was in the Warriors, he's got his own fashion brand, brand and um, working with him and Josh Hers, who are very good. They're doing incredibly well and yeah I have so many I I have you know like a lot of clients I've managed to work with over a thousand clients over the last well actually not not quite a decade last nine years so certainly lots of clients and by us running we run these two-day workshops which you've done obviously Simon the business planning workshops and they've been a real game changer where we can actually impact hundreds of companies as well so I have to say we feel very lucky SIP myself and the rest of our business changing team that we're able to positively impact and it was interesting because we launched during the GFC, so I feel like you know we're pretty well equipped to now help companies through whatever's going to happen over the coming year or two years as well. So it's um you're going to be interesting times, but but we're excited about what we're able to add to other companies to help them through this time. Yeah, a couple of ideas that kind of came out of that workshop thing that that seemed quite simple. Like you've mentioned the kind of ten commandments and the minimum standards ideas that are really powerful. There was something that we kind of immediately walked out and just instituted in our business, which was the idea of the five star concept. Can yes. you can you chat through that as an example of the kind of thing that get, that gets covered that is really simple and actionable, and businesses can take it away and understand it straight away. But if they hold themselves to it, they can actually positively impact things every day. Yep, sure. Yep. So the five star concept. I mean, there's there's a few few parts to it. The first one is you know you want to get customer feedback, of course, because 
first of all, you want to know what the customers are really thinking because if they're not happy, well, you want to know about it. And it's interesting, every piece of customer feedback you get, let's say it's negative, there's, there's approximately 13 other people out there who don't want to tell you. That's kind of been a proven statistic from Harvard or whatever. So, you know, I'm a big believer that you have to be really, really good at customer experience. Now, of course, if, you're the, if your product is known as being the cheapest, well, it's hard economically to have probably the best customer experience because you know but if you if your com- if your company is offering you know a, a normal mid price um, product service whatever it is you should have some let's say money or gross profit in there to be able to actually think about how you can take your service to the next level now um, I'm a big believer in getting five star reviews like we've got a lot of five star reviews um, we've actually luckily we've got the most out of any business coach or business advisory firm across New Zealand and Australia so for us we're trying to walk the talk and the reason for that is social proof social proof in today's world you know whether it's social media online whatever social proof is critical so i think that most companies don't make this the most of social proof whether it's testimonials whether it's you know your five-star google reviews your five-star facebook reviews whatever but when people are looking at your company for the first time you know as, as we all know you've only got a you've only got a matter of seconds to appeal to them and one way to do that is obviously social proof. You know, people want to know, wow, other people who are like me are dealing with this company and they're happy. So um, just let me explain the five-star thing a little bit more. It's a concept I heard from Uber, actually. Um, and they also have this thing called a six-star approach, a seven-star, an eight-star, a nine-star, and a ten-star. And I guess it's more you think about in your business, if you're going to give a one-star, two-star, three-star type of service, what does it look like? So I reckon you should document, actually write down what does a customer experience look like. As a two-star, it's not very good, obviously. As a four-star, it's kind of acceptable, but not that good. Five-star, yep, fantastic. What does six-star look like for your business? How do you, not that you can get six stars, but in, in the customer's mind, like they're like, wow, this is ridiculous. So um, yeah, I think that most companies aren't truly aware of what customers think. We do a lot of customer feedback, a lot of customer surveys for our clients. And a lot of our clients are great, you know, but but a lot of them are like, wow, okay, I didn't know that. I'm really glad I know it now. And you can obviously make some solid steps to getting better. So I think, you know, unless you are the cheapest, you know, Joe's discount disaster type shop selling just cheap stuff, um, most companies need to do better at service. And it's interesting, but I reckon uh, from reading several studies, more than one out of two customers that you lose you lose them because actually oh, your employees, that's the reason, it's, it's literally who they deal with. So obviously by being um, a great culture, in theory, your staff are going to give better customer experience as well. So I think, you know, put focus on letting your staff know what are the minimum standards of expectation on customer service, a bit like the finance, fi- uh, 10 commandments of Flight Centre. Give your staff, hey, these are the 10 commandments, whatever you want to call it, of customer experience in our business. It can be a checklist or whatever and hold them accountable, you know, assess them. How are they going? And um, yeah, all I can say is, you know, you want to keep your customers for life. Obviously, you want to also get new customers. There's no better way of getting new customers than word of mouth. We we loved it as it became a non-personal way to work out where you are and work out where you want to go. So you can look around everything you've got in your business and you go, is this is this five star? And if it's not five star, how can we make it five star? So you yes. go, actually, that's looking a bit four star. Yes. So what do we have to do to move it to five? And yes. then when you come into something and you ask your team and you go, hey, let's look at everything and make sure that everything yep. is a five star thing. Yep. And so then you walk around, and you go, well, actually, actually, that's three star. And it means it's not personalized. Yep. It's not like, hey, if you just say to someone, hey, that's not really good enough, yep. then it's like suddenly it's a defensive conversation. But if you say to someone, 
do you, what, what star rating would you give that? And they give it a three. Then they start working to make it a five. That's right. It's really, yeah, it was, um, and it's so simple, but but was really, really a cool thing to kind of yep. bake into the business. Yeah, no, it works well for sure. And in terms of like, um, you know, some some practical tips for business. So you're talking to a lot of these these businesses um, who are facing a lot of change at the moment. And, you know, you you know, like I was saying in the intro, you're, you're open the news and it looks like things are going to be, you, you know, we don't want to be, um, you know, too, too kind of uh, talk ourselves into a, a, a downer, but it's going to be six months of really hard times for a lot of businesses. And if people are relying on, you know, 20 grand of cash flow a week, they could be looking at 10 grand of cash flow a week for the next six months. What do businesses have to do if they're looking at a change in circumstances like that, if they're a cafe or they're a retail store that relies on tourism, which is going to be disrupted, or, you know, they're, they're a supplier that, um, you know, if they're not in the gun now, they'll be in the gun in a few months. Yep. I mean, certainly we're speaking before, the before you know, we hear what Jacinda's package is. So, you know, we'll wait and see what that is as well. I'm sure that will be, you know, helpful to many affected businesses. I think the best thing is... Uh, you know, it's as you said, Simon. It's not about taking a pessimistic view, but it's now it's pretty much accepted that okay, yep, things are going to be different for the next six to twelve months, perhaps eighteen months. Who knows? And there's some obvious industries which are massively affected, but but I think it's certainly going to flow through. And you know, whether this is worse than the GFC for New Zealand or not, you know, I, I won't comment. But it's certainly going to have an impact. I think the the, the biggest thing you can do at the moment is keep your team on side. So communicate a lot with your team. You know. Uh, I was reading that, uh, you know, Mike Bennett's from Z Energy, which is, you know, he seems to be, as far as I know, a successful leader and obviously leads a pretty good business. But, you know, they're just upping the communication. And I'm saying that with a lot of my clients, you know, they're having, you know, whether it's a daily meeting and all that sort of thing. So I think if you first talk about the, the pandemic side of things, you know, people in your team have different thoughts on what it means. So make sure you understand their view of coronavirus and, and, and help them to, you know, where you can. But as I say, this is, you know, way bigger than coronavirus. This is now the the economy. So I guess you know the biggest thing that causes stress, you'd say, to to business owners and and business managers is is cash flow, and as you said, you know you might go down from twenty grand a week to ten thousand. So you know um, I heard yesterday that Flight Centre has instigated a four day working week. I think be proactive. As I said back in two thousand and nine, we should have done stuff in two thousand and six to save money. You need to be honestly saving money today. Uh, so that's one thing is, you know, whether it's the working week and all that sort of thing, you know, we don't obviously, you know, there, there is a bit of a vicious circle where obviously if wages get reduced, you know, it's, it's not great. But all I'll say is there's going to be plenty of costs in your business where you're not actually getting a great return. Look at those. The other thing is it brings to mind or top of mind, should I say, the importance of converting every single opportunity that is in front of you. You know, I know in different businesses, you know, some businesses convert at 10% level online, you know, 1% to 2% is normal. Um, some businesses might convert 33%, whatever. If we just do some basic maths, let's say your conversion rate of a customer is 10% for argument's sake. Well, if you can go to 15%, you're going to get 50% growth in sales. Now, knowing that your bottom line, your, your sales might drop by a third, well, that 50% growth is going to more than offset arguably the third you're going to drop by. So I think, look at conversion rates. How can you help your sales team to be better at converting what do they need to do I guess how can you take away the questions that customers have how do you make yourself a necessity of course some businesses are not a necessity and they're, they're, it's, it's going to be an interesting thing to work through so as I say I think you know look at the ROI on your costs uh, look at your conversion rate and keep the morale high as high as you can because you know when morale goes down 
employee engagement goes down, customers can see it. So unluckily, your sales are not going to be as good as they can as well. But, you know, there's plenty of learnings. And it's funny, um, I'm going to go back and read some of my blogs that I wrote back in 2010, 2009. and have a reread of them because there'll be a lot of good learnings and those sort of things. So I think... It's um yeah looking learn, learning from the past and applying it going forward. But as I say, you know, there's going to be some very interesting times, and a really key part of that is somehow business owners and key managers, you're going to have to keep your mental health up because if we get down down as simple as that, well, of course everyone else is going to notice. So it's going to be a few challenges there, and I think that's one thing where you know you could have a bit of a look at how can you keep your mental health positive as well, and um. But, you know, I'm hoping that a lot of people have got reasonable, let's say, equity positions if they need to, you know, borrow 100 grand, whatever it might be. Um, You know, it sounds like the banks at the moment are not, you know, they're sounding relatively accommodating within reason. So what I'd say is if you believe that your business has a long-term future, then I believe that it's worth investing in it in the short term to get through these tougher times because when the times come back, as we've seen arguably over the last decade or so, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it's going to be boom times, but your business will, will do particularly well again. So I guess the question is, it's, it's actually a very good time to take stock of your business. Does it have a long-term future or not? If it does, you know, it's your decision, but I would be suggesting it could be worth, you know, investing to, when I say bankroll, you know, how you can get your business through the next next year or so. Um, and if you haven't been doing good in, in the good times, well, then I think you need to have probably quite a realistic look at it. Does your business actually truly have a long-term future? And if not, well, you know, how can I guess you close it down in a, in a methodical way? And what could you be doing? But I've, I'm, I'm assuming that most businesses won't be like that. They'll see some some future. So as I say, if you've got future in your business, if you think there's great future, I'd be investing in the short term to get through the pain, and then you will come out of it stronger. There's that great expression um, uh, related to cycling that you only actually make up ground on the uphills. So, you know, when it's downhill and everything's easy, all businesses go fast, but it's the ones who really put the effort in when things are hard. And, you know, I think, you know, people often operate quite at the edge of their kind of, you know, I'd be amazed if there aren't a lot of businesses that live kind of month to month or even fortnight to fortnight or week to week or day to day. And those those kind of businesses without those reserves are really going to be in a lot of in a lot of trouble. But yeah, as you say, if if the business is fundamentally likely to be good long term, it's the hard times you make the the ground up on. Yeah, certainly. You know, you look back at the last hard times, the last GFC, and many of the let's call them great companies now, unicorns, whatever. You know, whether it's Uber, Airbnb, Slack, you know, um, you name it, Spotify, whatever. Uh, a lot of these companies came out of the GFC, and the reason for that was. I guess you'd say because money was tight, people had to get really innovative in their thinking. So I believe that actually over the next 18 months across the world, there's going to be the next spate, you would say, of great startups. And so, yeah, I'd say, yeah, and and, and when I say great startups, you can have a great startup within your business as well. So, you know, knowing that times are challenging and there, there is going to be less money in the system, arguably, what can you do to... Uh, be innovative in your business. Is there a little startup? I was listening to Reid Hoffman, who you know we all respect, and um, he was saying recently, which I totally agree with, and I'm, I'm sure his view hasn't changed the last few weeks, you should probably put about 70% of your time into your core business, 20% into emerging business, and 10% into blue sky stuff. And all I'd say is, in the current thinking, the current times, I reckon that you need to start to definitely put. It's 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 about survival. It's about getting through it, and you know, in in a, in a positive way. But actually, I think now's the time to think 
hey, what can I start today that is going to be probably low cost, but incredibly innovative, and in three years or four years could be massively blossoming. So I think, as I say, it's not all about the short-term, not going to say doom and gloom, but the short-term pain, but actually, what can you be doing today that you will massively blossom with in, in, a, in a handful of years? And I would say, as I said earlier, if your business is fundamentally strong, invest in it, get it through these through these harder times. But actually, if you could not just do that, but if you could also have some amazing side thing that ultimately becomes your next big thing, because obviously the world and your business is always being disrupted, then you look back and think, wow, that's great. And, and the interesting thing is, is that these harder times likely will force us to be more innovative. And so, you know, I'm not trying to say it's going to be a blessing because, of course, it's not. However, people will come out of it stronger if they can actually come up with some great ideas as well. Yeah, and linking back to something you were saying a little bit earlier where if you're doing the right things at the right time, mm. and uh, so kind of to, to read between the lines of what you're saying there, the right things to do at the moment, you know, the top five things you could be doing right now is making a plan for the worst but hope for the best. Yep. Cut the costs in your, your business wherever you can. Where there's and, no ROI. And look yep. at things. Make a plan to invest to get through six to 12 to maybe 18 months of hard times and, and bank on it being more challenging for that length of time. I, I mean, I do believe, I mean, I think it's conser- you should be conservative. Mm. I mean, again, I'm, I'm hoping it's literally, you know, a handful of months, but I do think it's, wor- it's probably the, the best businesses plan conservatively. So I'd say, yeah, I would suggest, you know, you should plan for 12 to 18 months. But as I said earlier, also what innovative things can you do in your business that will, you know, incubate, you would say, over these interesting times and be ready to fly when times get good? Because, you know, in every downtime, there's always a good time. And, uh, you know, I guess, you know, New Zealand, we are relatively lucky in some respects because we're isolated. However, that has its challenges as well. So, um, but yeah, there's plenty of things you can do. The, The most important thing is have a plan. And know what the what your top five is, and do them, and also not just do them as a, at a company level, but have it at you know at a department manager level. Everyone in your business should have like a top five list. You know, work to normally I'd work to a ninety day plan. I do believe in the short term we almost need to be working to a weekly plan. To tell the truth, it's gone a bit more micro. Um, so you know, but yeah, have a plan. There's there's nothing better really. Yeah, and and one last thought would probably be about telling your story and differentiating because the the businesses that make it through are either going to be very, um, they're going to have a strong cash position that means that they're able to ride it, or customers maintain spending with them. And, um, you know, when when things get harder for customers to spend, it becomes a real kind of choice, especially if you're not an essential thing. So I imagine it's kind of a really important time as well for for telling the story and communicating with your customers. Uh, It really is, Simon. What I find is most, let's say, new clients I work with, I ask them what what their points of difference are, you know, what's their unique selling proposition, their USP, and what they tell me is actually exactly the same as what the competitor down the road or the competitor down the internet actually says. So I believe that most companies fundamentally, A, aren't truly aware of what their actual true unique points of difference are, their unique abilities, and secondly, just agreeing with what you're saying, they're not good at marketing it. So, you know, customers want a reason to do business with your business and they want a reason to choose you over your competitors. And I believe that many customers, many human, you know, many Kiwis, whatever country you're from, they will they will look at, you know, things. And, and even in hard times, they're still going to potentially pay a little bit more because they believe in your story than the competitor down the road. Um, so I think, yeah, definitely... As I say, first of all, check that you actually truly understand your fundamental points of difference. And um, if you don't, 
get someone to help you who can hopefully you know help you. I reckon to understand your points of difference, ask the five whys. You know why are we different? Why is that? Why is that? Why is that? Probably ultimately you'll come up with some true core points of difference that you can actually think, wow, that's quite marketable actually. And then as you say, you know, get get, get work through a process of getting it out to um, current customers and potential customers. And I think, you know, whatever you do, don't stop under-investing in your current customers in today's climate as well. You know, don't forget about them. Be proactive, you know, show them that you love them, show them that you care and that you want to you want to help them because, you know, they're, they're the easiest um, form of, I guess you'd say, bankrolling your business as your current customers. So make sure you're keeping, you know, very good communication with them as well. Yeah, and if you're if you're listening and you're not a business owner, you know every every dollar you spend to vote for the kind of world you want to live in, and and really think about the kind of businesses you want to support through. I guess that's right. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, choose yeah. choose wisely and spend wisely. <laughs> and just as a last thought, you know, kind of like having it was a question we love to ask everyone. Having had such such success, um, you know, at a really young age in in the um really competitive world of uh, accounting and being a CFO and and in a listed company, um, you know, most CFOs have of, of multi-hundred person listed companies would be probably in their late 50s if they were lucky and and having then you know run these turnarounds and been a really successful coach like kind of what's your version of success what 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 will be success for you success for me I guess it's it's come around like my first wife so I'm married to Sip now who's an amazing wife and we um, are amazing business partners and have a lot of fun and have a great life I was married earlier to a lady called Fleur and um, she's the mother of my three children and Fleur unluckily um, she got breast cancer and passed away in 2006 and that really opened up my eyes in terms of wow life can be super short and that's when I got into Barkers as well. Beyond wanting a new challenge, um, I was, you know, very keen to sink my teeth into something. And it was, you know, um, the same year that Fleur passed away. And it was interesting, you know, being a solo dad with three children and all that sort of thing. And I think what 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 I what I started getting what I started thinking about, yeah, was what is actually success? Knowing that my wife had had a very short life, passing away at thirty two. And I thought that at that time, and it's become even stronger now, and, and certainly Sip, my, my, my wife today, has helped me immensely um, in many ways in, in life and business, but she's also helped me to understand my view of success. And I think through all these learnings, I've learned that success, in my view, is actually having ultimate choice. So if you can choose what you do, how you live your life, that's success. To me, it's not about money or whatever it's about having choice so when I work with my clients with our business um, coaching business business changing it's all about how can we get them set up so they can actually be successful in the terms of having the ability to choose to do whatever they want to do whether it's go to work three days a week whether it's to work 100 hours a week which we don't suggest um, or whether it's to you know ultimately sell their business but yeah, as I say success is having ultimate choice and making the most of your life and that's one reason we launched the Nurture Change business retreats up in Fiji because we saw that business owners were like, they were lonely. There was no community and they weren't taking care of their mental health. So we thought, wow, what else can we do to help them be successful so they can have ultimate choice in the decisions in their life? And we thought, wow, let's get them together in Fiji or Hawaii or, or New Zealand and actually build a community and get them to, to, when I say care for one another, you know, it is lonely in business. So, um, you know, I think success is having ultimate choice, knowing you've got mates around who are there to help you if you need. And of course, you know, living a long life and, and having a prosperous family. Yeah, oh, that's magic. Well, thank you so much for sharing the story and a bit of advice uh, today. Um, thank you, Zach De Silva of Business Changing. 
Thanks so much, Simon. It's been a lot of fun. And thank you very much to Tina Tiller for producing. And thank you very much for having us along and listening. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.